Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and we have a very different and exciting episode for you guys today, bringing in someone internally for a conversation about the state of the market. We have our VP of research, George Calais, joining us on the other side of the mic to talk about our end-of-year report that the research team has been working on for, I guess, probably a quarter or so. It's been, I, I every time I have a new request or an ask from someone on this on that side to make a chart or do something, they, they tell me they're too busy, that I have to do it myself because they're up to their knees or rather up to their neck in this report. So I'm so happy it's done because now, now whenever I bother you guys, you'll have some, you'll have some spare time to, to indulge me in, in various requests, but Appreciate you taking the time. For sure. Thanks for for having me. Excited to talk about um, what the team's put together. As you mentioned, it's definitely been always a bit of a bear to put together a 200-page report. So uh, glad the team has stayed diligent about all those data requests. <laughs> so we, we, we obviously kind of took a different approach this year. I think maybe we can start there, right? Typically or historically, we've been doing this, I think, for three years, maybe maybe longer. Um, the report had kind of taken a shape or a form that um, was almost a bit more um, um, standard or like it, it was very much um, a rigid type of overview of the market. This year, you tried to make it a bit more dynamic um, and really reflect the times rather than sort of try to, you know, put squares into square holes. So walk us through that. What sort of, um, what should people expect and how is it maybe different from years prior? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I think the biggest change was mainly around the mindset uh, we took to writing the report, which was really about thinking um, about the unique things that happen in the year um, and the way in which I think in 2023, we realized the interconnectedness between macro institutions, regulation, um, development of blockchain platforms um, and their evolution from a scaling and adoption perspective, along with uh, the use of applications, whether they're uh, DeFi, NFTs, now social uh, payments. Um, So looking at it from kind of a holistic perspective. So the way we decided to cut it up was starting with um, looking at the broader uh, prices of cryptocurrencies over the past year, uh, coloring that with um, how they've performed in the context of the macro environment, um, and then taking that and looking at um, what infrastructure, what market infrastructure uh, has been used for Uh, the facilitation of capital into the sector um, across both trading, whether that's spot or derivatives, along with then uh, private investments um, and the different ways that investors have have allocated over the past year. Um, And then moving a little bit more into uh, the blockchain platforms that we've seen have the most success. Um, Obviously, a lot of that in recent weeks has been very relevant to price. We've we've seen a lot of activity on Solana, for example, um, which has generated um, a virtuous cycle of price appreciation of Sol and then kind of more users coming back um, 
into the ecosystem. Uh, so unpacking, you know, what has happened uh, across Ethereum, other L1s, um, and, you know, where we're kind of seeing leaders. Um, and then ending by looking at, you know, who we see using applications, what's gaining more prominence in, you know, a higher rate environment, an environment where we're increasingly going multi-chain, um, and, you know, for what purposes um, are those people using crypto applications? So that's that's kind of the, the broader, uh, you know, way we decided to cut it up this year. So reading through the 200 pages of the report, um, kind of playing the, the pivotal role in its development, how, how would you define the year 2023 from a crypto perspective? If you were to break it down into, let's call it three points, um, is it is it, you know, is it institutional adoption? Is it the rise of soul? Is it, um, you know, what are some of the big um, uh, brushstrokes you can make? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. I I think there are a few things we've noticed. You know, crypto has actually become really multifaceted, so you know it's hard to summarize things in, in kind of one one trend. Um, but the big things that stood out to us were, you know, one uh, prices went up across the board. Um, so, you know, Bitcoin was up around over 150% now, you know, Ethereum, um, you know, close to up 100%. Solana, as you mentioned, is is up over 500% now. Uh, total crypto market cap is roughly doubled. Um, and this was not what a lot of people expected going into the year. Um, you know, we came into the year... Um, after 2022, where we had already had a bunch of rate hikes, uh, it was projected uh, the Fed was going to continue to raise interest rates, which they did, um, you know, all the way through July. And especially given seeing like the market carnage um, of 2022, a lot of people expected, you know, either more shoes to drop or just broader um, you know, stagnation other sectors of the stagnation and, you know, maybe crises elsewhere uh kind of seeping into the crypto markets it's it's interesting right once you sort of get into a certain mental framework or um the market enters a certain cycle it's so hard to sort of see beyond that which is existing around you so um that's probably a, another trend we can unpack was there a degree or any any insight into the the degree to which people were sidelined um from uh, the moves that we saw in the previous quarter. It, was that a defining sort of um, touch um, uh, touch point? Definitely. I mean, it's always um, a bit tricky to, to look at, you know, how much capital's in the system. But, you know, two metrics we like to use are stablecoin supply and volumes. Um, despite price doubling over the past year, uh, stablecoin supply is down over the year. And uh, volumes have remained relatively flat. They've they've spiked in the past month, but uh, through most of the year, they they were relatively flat. So um, that that probably does indicate some you know element of of people being sidelined. Um, and kind of going back to some of these crises, um, there there actually was you know an external crisis um, in March, the, the banking crisis. Um, but that actually, you know, it drove up volumes, particularly on chain um, in March around, you know, the brief DPEG of USDC. But it actually didn't meaningfully um, impact 
crypto asset prices overall. Um, you know, there was a, a brief uh, decline, but, you know, we've retraced relatively quickly. Got it. Maybe we can focus on sort of the um, the narratives being shaped around scaling. How, how um, would you describe 2023 when it comes from the way in which these various blockchain networks are trying to scale? What are some of the key takeaways from the report? Yeah, so um, that was actually going to be the second trend um, that I, I think became really dominant this year uh, was scaling. But really at the heart of it um, was a debate between a modular versus a integrated or monolithic uh, scaling approach. And so kind of modular being represented uh, by the Ethereum community, um, you know, really around delegation of execution optimization to external rollups uh, versus mm-hmm. integration, which, um, you know, has gained a lot of mindshare recently with Solana really taking off. So, you know, starting on the modular side, um, I, I would say, you know, when you think about how Ethereum and other um, you know, multi-chain ecosystems or other modular ecosystems scale, um, you know, there's kind of the principle of enshrined scaling. So making changes to the base layer itself. Um, and then there's kind of adjunct, which would refer to, um, you know, I would call more market-driven solutions that are built on top um, or or below, however, however you want to visualize it, uh, the base layer. Um, so most of the, you know, advancement, at least the advancement that we can really tangibly um, see in data was around uh, these market-driven solutions. So the most, um, I think, most clear example of that was uh, Layer 2s uh, saw a lot of adoption this year. So optimistic rollups, which have really just beaten uh, zero-knowledge rollups to market, um, have almost like tripled in value locked this year. Additionally, the most popular optimistic rollups, Optimism and Arbitrum, have both released their own open source stacks. So uh, there's the OP stack and, and Arbitrum Stylus, which... Uh, is a little bit later, uh, but OP stack has already seen base and some other L2s build on top of it, uh, which has really kind of accelerated the development of rollups on Ethereum. Uh, meanwhile, you know, zero knowledge rollups have progressed. Uh, Polygon, ZK, EVM, Linea, Scroll uh, released in the Q1, Q3, and Q4, respectively. Um, and demonstrate some, you know, early versions of ZK EVM with bytecode level EVM equivalents, which has been, you know, a really promising development. We're still waiting on, um, you know, more to be rolled out with StarkNet, which a lot of people are excited for, which is a Cairo-based uh, zero-knowledge rollup. Um, but, you know, aside from the rollups, I think what's been really interesting about this year is... Uh, you actually see a lot of development around, you know, other layers of the modular stack. So, you know, one example of that is data availability, uh, which we actually saw the first um, really large L2. Um, it was it was Mantle, I believe. Um, and they announced in July that they would be um, using... Eigenlayer for off-chain data availability. 
Uh, so that really signals, you know, a broader push towards um, using things other than the Ethereum base layer within the broader Ethereum ecosystem. Similarly, I know we've talked a bit about Celestia, which which launched in November, um, also, you know, uh, with with kind of that data availability focus. Um, so that's there's been a lot of development there. So I think you, I think you, yeah, I think you delineated it quite well. The three, there's sort of three main uh, undercurrents to this, right? You have uh, an emphasis or, 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 or a strong focus on the pros and cons between modularity and monolithic stacks. That being one, you sort of have um, the the growth and acceleration of of layer twos between the ZKs and the optimistic rollups. And then the third part being sort of this really keen focus on data availability, um, which is sort of um, manifested, right? And in, in, to your point, the run-up in TIA. Can, can you maybe like break down that third component? Why are people um, or why have folks been so keen, whether it's Egan Layer or Egan Layer, however you say it, um, so keen to sort of focus on um, data availability. Why did this become such a strong topic in 2023? Yeah. Um, I mean, the simple answer is data availability is just another expense that rollups have to incur. Um, so uh, by offloading that to a separate chain that's not Ethereum, they're able to save um, considerably um, by using, you know, one of those dedicated DA layers. Got it. And so it's almost part of the the growth of of layer twos that this sort of emerged as a important trend. Exactly. Um, if if we were to have written this report, or if we you know were to written write the report in the format that it's taking this year back in DeFi summer, that probably would have been part two or part one. Um, what's what's the state of DeFi now, and and how how was it sort of represented in the report? Um, what tailwinds and headwinds are in that uh, corner of the market? Yeah, for sure. So um, it's a really good question because we were kind of thinking about that internally. Uh, the The way we structured it was really focusing on what are the emergent versus what is sort of fallen by the wayside or at least just not seen a lot of growth over the past year. And really what we identified was liquid staking and uh, real world assets on chain. Um, and so with liquid staking... Um, you know, I, I think people sometimes forget the drama around, or maybe it was more of a mini drama around, uh, staked ETH, which is the, the liquid staking derivative, um, for Lido's, uh, liquid staking platform on Ethereum, which, um, I think as of now, roughly 30% of all ETH, uh, that is staked is, is staked with Lido. So considerable percentage um, and going back to kind of the market chaos of 2022, um, a lot of the bad trades were these arbitrage trades or like recursive leverage trades, like the GBTC arbitrage. Um, and both Celsius and Three Arrows Capital, which were two of the first, uh, you know, uh, trading desk centralized venues uh, to go bust, they were. That was one of their largest holdings was staked ETH. You know, Celsius uh, was borrowing against staked ETH collateral on Aave, running a recursive leverage strategy. Um, and so when those companies were filing for bankruptcy, there was actually a slight uh, dislocation between the prices of Ethereum and staked ETH. Um, and, 
you know, on top of that, a lot of people thought, you know, with talking about a enshrined uh, advancement within the Ethereum community, one thing we did have was uh, the Chappella upgrade, which one of the things that it allowed for was since we moved to proof of stake in September of 2022, uh, you could deposit stake, but you couldn't withdraw it. And so a lot of people thought, you know, when Chappella hits and you can withdraw stake in um, April, I think it was, of 2023, you'll see flows out of Lido. Um, you know, maybe there'll be diversification. Maybe people will stake on their own. But actually what happened was more and more money flood into to Lido. I think $10 billion more capital sits in Lido compared to this time last year. And the reason behind that is the biggest fear, which is there could be a massive uh, deviation between long-term deviation between staked ETH and ETH eventually, or kind of essentially went away uh, with Chappella. And so we saw liquid staking on Ethereum, particularly with Lido do very, very well this year. Uh, but we also saw interesting developments on other chains. So Gito, for example, is a very Solana native liquid staking and also MEV type platform uh, that is on Solana. And they've recently grown tremendously, actually just launching their token after being um, you know, in production for, I think, around two years now. So um, there, there are a lot of interesting things on the, on the liquid staking side. Definitely. I think that's probably going to take up a fair bit of the report. Um, okay. Let's shift gears just slightly. Um, I want to, I want to unpack the, the degree to which, because I think this is almost one of the more fundamental, um, d defining characteristics of 2023, which was the extent to which crypto was impacted by macro. Um, when we think about um, what was like how it was a surprising run up. It, it, it wasn't surprising in as much as if you look at any risk asset, um, you know, kind of had a similar sort of rise. You look at different types of stocks like Duolingo or, or a whole wide range saw similar, um, you know, double digit, um, triple digit percentage increases year to date. So um, there was definitely that, but, how would you how would you sort of walk us through the extent to which crypto markets mirrored um traditional markets and and what was the impact maybe of you know rising interest rates on on defi or crypto in general um but i guess to put a finer point to the question um without without pontificating a bit too much on my end how would you say um the sort of macro environment um impacted crypto and then would you uh, would 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 you agree that sort of there was a mirroring there? Definitely. I mean, I, I think we often think we're we're so unique, uh, but if if you look at a lot of broader economic data, um, it kind of uh, shows, I, I, at least from a, a backwards looking perspective, um, that you know, twenty twenty three was a relatively positive environment for risk assets generally. Granted, crypto performed far better uh, than broader um assets so um i i don't know what uh the s p 500 has done i think it's up around 20 percent this year where you know cryptos doubled but um 
you know, I, I think crypto has definitely moved both in its run up in 2020, 2021, uh, with low interest rates, um, you know, it's it's not too surprising that the first interest rate hike was right before Terra Luna, um, and the Fed stopped raising rates, uh, at least temporarily, um, in July of this year. Um, you know, and and we saw our recent run up in uh, coin prices, uh, most significantly in November and December. Uh, so so I think there's definitely strong strong correlation, if not direct causation of uh, interest rate policy and um, asset prices, particularly in crypto. Yeah, 100%. Obviously, this year was also uh, defined by regulation, of course, um, but between um, sort of the anticipation for a spot Bitcoin ETF out of the SEC, as well as the agency's lawsuits against Binance and Coinbase. And then, of course, the um, sort of crown jewel of, of news for this year from a regulatory perspective was um, the DOJ settlement with with Binance International. Um, to, to what degree um, – walk us through sort of the shifting exchange landscape um, and, and how sort of that's tied to regulation. Maybe we can start there. Yeah, it's a great question because um, I think on one hand, we've seen almost – two very different um, postures from like a regulatory or maybe outcomes from like a regulatory and institutional perspective, which which I can kind of touch on it on a little bit. And then also, I think, you know, when we talk about regulation, sometimes we also overestimate the impact of regulation on things we're seeing in the market. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll kind of start with some of the bad, maybe. Um, so, you know, the year started off actually with, I think it was like January 3rd or, or at least sometime in January, uh, the FDIC, the Fed, the OCC, which is like the primary banking regulator, uh, kind of like the who's who of financial regulators in the U.S., you know, basically came out with a statement uh, just, you know, months ahead of the banking crisis uh, saying, look, you know, holding crypto assets um, as deposits um, is incredibly risky, um, you know, implicit that, you know, banking crypto companies in general is very risky, doesn't follow sound banking practices. You know, I think, wink, wink, we all know when a regulator tells you you're doing something or might be doing something that doesn't follow sound banking practices, um, you know, you don't argue. You you kind of just say, you know, that's that's the new policy, even if there's not a law around it. Um, and so we saw a lot of traditional banks stepping away from the crypto sector um, throughout the year. And then we also, during the banking crisis, two of the banks that you know were uh, went under were uh, Silvergate uh, and Signature, which not only were you know friendly to crypto clients, but actually operated their own infrastructure for the crypto industry. Um, you know, with Signet and Signature. And I think by like in 2022, those platforms did something like 700 and 900 or billion uh, like dollars worth of volumes. Um, sorry, like 900 billion uh, worth worth of volumes, which is significant. Uh, they serviced you know clients like Coinbase, Kraken, Circle, um, 
And no one's really stepped in to take that. There are some banks, uh, regional banks in the U.S. that that have done some crypto servicing. There have been some European banks. Uh, we already know that certain large uh, systemic uh, banks do bank uh, stable coins like Circle, um, Circle's USDC. Uh, you know, Coinbase has large systemic banking partners. Uh, so, so there is some um, you know sustained activity there, but it's definitely decreased uh, noticeably just from you know conversations with people in the industry. Um, and then, you know, of course, you have uh, J.P. Morgan, which uh, Jimmy Dimon was was just kind of uh, quoted saying, uh, I, th I think he actually testified saying that, you know, crypto should essentially be killed or outlawed, uh, I think were his words. Um, he would shut it down. He would shut he it down. In government. And, you know, this is kind of um, on the the back of. Uh, I think the justification this time has been uh, the links to Hamas terrorism financing, which, although, you know, somewhat disproved, and I'm sure as a, a journalist, you have your own um, opinions on the uh, linkage of the now changed um, chain analysis. Uh, or, yeah. yeah, maybe it wasn't chain analysis. I think it was um, the other competitor. Um, um, the Elliptic. Elliptic the now changed elliptic report to a wall street journal coverage of it to senator uh warren's um you know draft document that referenced the wall street journal article to now this proposed legislation that she's been shopping around capitol hill um and you know the the provenance of the now changed facts and the corrections haven't haven't made its way to uh warren's desk apparently but um so, so we've seen a lot of, you know, attacks, hostility, uh, lack of engagement from some side of the institutional market. Um, but on the other side, particularly large asset managers have been diving right in. And so BlackRock, Fidelity, Wisdom Tree, Vinac, um, have been submitting applications for, for spot Bitcoin ETFs, uh, which has been something that the market is uh, really been clamoring for for quite a while. And now there's an actual expectation that this probably will happen in January. Uh, the SEC has actually been, you know, holding meetings with these uh, players, um, you know, which makes it look like they are just getting to kind of the final nuts and bolts of how this is structured. I think the the current hang up is around whether it's, uh, you know, Bitcoin settled in kind or or in cash. Um, but it looks like regardless, there will be like broader exposure through, uh, these large asset management ETF issuers. Um, we've really seen two things. Um, but, you know, going back to your question on, you know, rates and macro, um, sure. Like we've seen Bitcoin dominance increase, um, a little bit around ETF hype. Um, and a lot of people have sort of attributed that to the rally, but I would still, you know, attribute most of the rally to expectations around, you know, the Fed not raising interest rates, which uh, seems to also be permeating through broader equities markets. So uh, going back to kind of how I opened your last question, you know, we, we seem to think we're different, but um, a lot of these things can be reflected elsewhere also. Yeah, hundred percent. So just just staying on the regulatory thread for a second, just 
how we, we kind of mused over this this morning, right? The, at least from my perspective, the DOJ case, um, well, that was long rumored, right? There was going to be some sort of settlement between Binance and the DOJ. Um, I had heard $2 billion. It turned out to be $4 billion. Um, it, it seemed like everyone had that kind of, you know, everybody had that over, hanging over them. Um, and so once that was revealed, um, it almost was like everyone could take a deep sigh of relief that all the knowns were known, right? Which is the worst thing that you can have is sort of un- unknowns. Now we know what we're dealing yep. with in a sense. Um, we didn't know if Binance would be shut down or if, you know, what was going on exactly, which, you know, if 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 the largest market participant in your space could not exist, that just is going to make you, uh, you, you know, your risk tolerance is going to be a little bit different. Yep. But maybe just focusing on the exchanges for a second, this is kind of always has, have been our, our bread and butter from a data perspective, looking at market share and looking at volumes and and that sort of thing. Give us a rundown um, of the exchange landscape um, and and how sort of regulation, this DOJ case, um, impacts things. Like Like I said, we were talking this morning and um, we we kind of went through the the playbook right of of these offshore venues, which is, um, you know, kind of it seems to have taken the shape of don't KYC, grow a market, get slapped in the wrist, and then kind of rinse and repeat. Yep, um, that's a good simplification. But um, what we've seen is, I mean, you mentioned Binance, so let's just start there. Um, Binance actually started the year quite strong. Um, I, I think post FTX, um, some of the, the largest players scooped up a lot of that market share, um, but they had a disastrous rest of the year. And I think a lot of people are really quick to point to regulation and, and some of the cases that uh, was brought against Binance. But I really don't think that's the primary reason. Um, you know, what I see is the the main reasons are the two big things that happened in February and then March, which is February, uh, Paxos. Um, indicated that it would stop minting uh, Binance USD, which is uh, the stablecoin issued by Paxos, which uh, white label stablecoins, you know, Paxos is arguably the most regulated stablecoin issuer, um, but wrapped um, for on uh, Binance's issued for Binance and and branded for Binance. Um, And so they announced they would stop minting uh, Binance USD, uh, you know, the, the reasons are really around Binance was also minting. And that was the death knell. Well, so that was one. Um, and, you know, what we saw is over the course of the year, Binance trying to um, incentivize usage of different stable coins um, as, you know, it had to move away from BUSD volumes. But the big thing was what happened in March, in my opinion, which is Binance ended a nine or, or 10 month program that they had had uh, for zero fee trading across most of its Bitcoin uh, spot, stablecoin and USD pairs. Um, and, you know, we saw that Binance just gobbled up market share uh, when they had this program because it was comparatively so cheap to trade on Binance because there were no fees um, on Bitcoin pairs, which which is definitely the most liquid pairs on any exchange. And, um they ended that in March and, you know, 
just looking at the data, your guess is as good as mine, but that's when we started to see Binance market share really tumble. Um, and that in conjunction with Binance's stablecoin, which had been incentivized through zero fee trading through this program, now, you know, becoming virtually non-existent, um, Binance, you know, now didn't have a, a good mechanism to implement some of these programs to regain market share. So it first tried with true USD. Um, and then there was an issue because true USD, um, their custodian prime trust went bankrupt. Um, so then it moved to first digital USD, which also just, I, I think people were generally sketched out about, um, it had almost no track record and, um, very not transparent. Um, and Binance was trying to sort of game, uh, you know, tilt the scales in, in favor of these stable coins by doing zero fee promotions for these different um, stable coin pairs. Uh, but ultimately, what we saw is just more and more trading started becoming denominated in Tether. Um, and so Tether is, is by far the most dominant stable coin across um, exchanges primarily, but also it is the largest stablecoin. Um, and so a lot of the BUSD, FDUSD, TUSD volume sort of converted into Tether volumes. Um, so we've seen that on Binance. Um, but Binance is also just, you know, I think due to some of uh, the regulatory pr pressures um, is, is less attractive of a venue these days. So in some, there are a lot of, there are like a myriad of reasons for why Binance has seen a decline. And so who's actually kind of picked some of that up? Um, I think a big winner has been Coinbase. Uh, it's definitely a smaller exchange, but um, I, I think there are elements to where a lot of people see the future of Coinbase being a lot stronger now because you know we're in this world, and this is going back to our conversation earlier a little bit, um, you know, now that we're in a post FTX world, you know, Coinbase seems like the venue, um, particularly like the US focused venue uh, that has survived and not just survived, but it's really innovated this year. It's crushed really the three main dominant three themes that we talked about layer twos, launching base, um, ETFs, uh, BlackRock uh, announced that Coinbase would be the custodian. Uh, nine out of 12 of the new filings list Coinbase as a custodian and decentralized social, which we haven't talked about yet, but the kind of marquee decentralized social app has been FriendTech, which is built on base. Um, so Coinbase has sort of emerged from this very well. Um, and also, you know, going back to the actual impact of that $4 billion fine, I actually don't really think that's going to like cause too much of an issue with Binance. Um, Binance has been doing proof of reserves for you know, over a year now. And I don't think people are really concerned that like, oh no, they're going to have this hole. Um, but what it does is it disincentivizes new players to replicate the Binance playbook of flippantly disregarding KYC. Um, because now you know, okay, we're probably not going to be able to take- It can as, get bad. Exactly. We're not going to be able to get as much market share. The SEC DOJ is going to crack down quicker. And, you know, maybe it's worse. And, you know, on top of the fine, no one wants to spend time in prison. So I don't think anyone is going to. <laughs> or or house arrest. Exactly. Or, or house arrest. Um, so there's still definitely a 
massive market for the international exchanges, but I think um, Coinbase can feel a little bit more comfortable in its um, presence within the U.S. They're on a more equal playing field. I think that's why you saw a lot of juice in coin um, was because it basically uh, – the, the Binance settlement um, basically – puts um, these international exchanges on a more equal playing field with Coinbase or put that the other way around. Coinbase is now on a more equal uh, playing field. Um, okay. I guess one fun way to maybe close things out. Let's you, you talked about one winner being Coinbase. I think it's fair to say uh, Binance is one loser of this year. Maybe give us your top three winners of 2023 and your top three um, might be putting you a bit on the spot Ooh. with the losers. I don't want to get you, I don't get you in trouble with anyone, but losers. Um, let's try to, we'll, we'll try to be, yeah, they're losers. <laughs> um, losers might be a bit strong, but you can also talk about, um, it doesn't necessarily need, need to be a company. It can be sort of like a category, like maybe, yep. uh, I, th- I think I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to front run your answer here. Uh, maybe NFTs were a big loser in 2023. Um, so I'll give you the option of, of categories or, or, uh, specific entities as well. Cool. That's a fun question. Um, I think the, the first winner that comes to my mind is, um, you know, we actually didn't get to it, but Solana, which, um, you know, we talked about the modular approach, but we never really talked about, you know, the integrated approach and, uh, Solana got blasted in over the past few years for things like network outages. And then it was, you know, I, I think probably overly uh, connected uh, or seen as connected to um, all of the FTX drama. And so from just like a, a technical price level, it obviously had a lot of room to grow uh, in, in 2023. But they also did a lot of work on upgrades to their um, broader technology stack. Uh, that has dramatically reduced. I, I don't think there's been a network outage in the past six months. I think that's. A, I think. I think. I think. I think that's a really great point. Um, there, uh, it's been a whole year. So 2023 was the year of no Solana outage. Yeah. Um, which is which is pretty good. Time goes by fast. Um, it does. But yeah, and I I think there's also been this meme around kind of like only built on Solana, where um, you know the difficulty of Solana, I think, in many early ways uh, was a headwind, but it's become a tailwind because you don't have this, let's fork a Ethereum app and build it on Solana, which you, you kind of do have on other L1s. Um, you even have that on, on Ethereum a lot. Uh, but you have people who've actually you know, built in the SVM um, and have built applications that make sense and are unique to Solana. Uh, so, you know, one of the other protocols that that recently launched, uh, their token is uh, uh, the uh, exchange aggregator, uh, Jupiter. Um, and, and, you know, what's really interesting there is, is the way they um, are able to kind of aggregate liquidity in a way that you, you kind of can't really do on, on other networks. Um, and so I, I think there's a lot of interesting developments happening on Solana, and that's driven a lot of people uh, to now use it, but also speculate uh, using it. So I, I think Solana has a lot of like positive flywheels and has really like been a big winner this year. Um, 
just in in the sake of brevity, I'll I'll give one spot to um, to Coinbase as as well. Uh, I think we both kind of walked through some of the reasons that they've they've kind of crushed it this year. Um, and so now you have a you have one more to pick. Yeah, I, th- I think I need to pick someone you know slightly outside of crypto uh, for for this last one. So um, I'll go with the CME because we actually saw them overtake Binance in terms of futures volumes, uh, which um, is is a pretty noticeable indicator of institutional adoption. The CME has been servicing the the Bitcoin space for quite some time now. Um, so I, I, I do think it was a positive development to see a lot of activity happen um, on their more regulated futures venues. Okay. Now, losers, are we going to put Binance in there? I feel like you actually wouldn't put them in there because they're, they're, they're sort of, you know, more of a, more in a middle ground or, or maybe you would. Yeah. Um, I think um, they're, they're, we'll leave them out for now. They're, they're kind of a, a stagnant. Okay. I think one loser we, we haven't really talked about is uh, Circle. So, you know, one thing we saw with a reduction in uh stablecoin supply is a lot of that was kind of leaked away from USDC. Um, I think a lot of people like to like cite the brief DPEG in, in the banking crisis, but I, I really the main reason in my opinion is uh, USDC holders are primarily American um, or have greater access to US financial markets. Um, the DeFi yields on USDC are comparatively less attractive than they were, um, you know, two, three years ago, given uh, just what treasuries are. And so while we've seen a lot of speculation and asset prices doing really well, uh, markets starting to recover because people expect inflation um, not to, or uh, rates and inflation both not to skyrocket. The fact that rates are sustained at a high level um, is a massive headwind for USDC uh, when the comp is you know uh using something like a die yeah when the risk free rate is yeah yeah so die could could also be a bit of a a winner just given you know they pivoted to um rwa as collateral which is which has been really interesting um so so usdc is is definitely like not done quite as well as um as its peers um so that's that's definitely one example um let's see. I, I think the the Wall Street Journal, another another loser. Um I mean, I think this Hamas uh, you know, kind of somewhat uh questionable piece was uh I mean it there was I, I was kind of following the the journalist on Twitter and there was kind of some odd exchanges and, and kind of lack of recognition of the facts that eventually kind of came out around the claims uh, he was citing. Um, so so I, I thought that was, um, you know, a little like not great. And then the other thing was, I don't know if you got these notifications all the time for uh, the uh, the FTX podcast they had. It was like crypto's golden boy or something. Did you see those? Mm-hmm. Like, ugh, it was just so nauseating. I was so sick of seeing those. Um, so they they took a step down in in my book. Um, 
Let me think. Um, who who would be a third? I guess it's all it's all it's all relative, right? So it's not necessarily like um, like <laughs> no, these are just power like circles. Of, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, I mean, I I think one winner actually would be the stablecoin sector as a whole, uh, because in a high interest rate environment, it's actually able to generate massive yields on its uh, on its assets and. Uh, so, so maybe actually that's my third loser is, uh, stablecoin holders for, you know, on the margin, unless you're using, you know, certain emerging products, which actually some of these newer stablecoins have their own risks, but, um, by and large stablecoin holders are not getting past, uh, the yield that their issuers are earning. So big L for, uh, those sitting in stables. <laughs> if you were parked in stables, you're... Big L on your part. Um, well, George Kelly, thanks so much for taking the time. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Of course. And The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Make sure to check out the report um, on theblock.co, and I'm sure we'll be tweeting it out as well. Um, you know, just take get, download that thing, give us your email, um, get the PDF, maybe print it out, staple it, get a bottle of Chianti or something, and just just have a lovely evening with it. Thanks.